All right, guys, welcome to Car Thoughts with David. And uh, today on the show, uh, I've got an interview uh, with Rob Statham, who is a wine and beer sommelier. And we are going to go over basically how wine, spirits, beer influence the world, change the world, um, you know, the history of it and how it is in today's society and just kind of been. Uh, go back and forth. So, Rob, if you'd just like to introduce yourself, and we'll get started, man. Yeah, so um, I um, I know you know this, but I own a business called The Drunken Grape, and I spend a lot of my time doing videos and vlogging on wineries and breweries and occasionally spirits and um, host a few events here in Ottawa just in the domestic market, but not a whole lot of that. A lot more of it's focused now on the videography and the video component to really help get brands out there and to gain exposure um, to the wider public, especially your small to mid-sized producers. You know, the Bacardis and the Grey Gooses of the world, it's pretty self-explanatory, but the small to mid-sized businesses really do need some help in getting uh, what their product is outside of often, uh, you know, city regional provincial or state barriers oh yeah yeah i mean that's the thing there's so many people that know like you said the big name stuff but oh, yeah. you know those smaller companies you know it's like you only hear about them if you're a local or if you happen to have known somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody type thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely very cool very cool so um you know, we had talked a little bit before the show about like the history of wine and beer. And, uh, you know, so what, um, you know, definitely I'd like to share that also with the audience as well. Um, you know, so just just go over some of the history and, and, and uh, let me know, you know, some of the, uh, the cool things, little facts. <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely tons of them. I mean, it's it's really beer first and foremost followed by wine followed by spirits have had a huge impact on the globe and uh, really socially politically economically spiritually and in uh, you know in medicine and technological developments if we go back um, for the first 90,000 years as homo sapiens and homo sapiens sapiens of humankind as we know it which is basically us today um, the first 90,000 years we were uh, hunters you know, we would hunt, the men would go out and hunt, the women would uh, do what would say equally, if not a more important task of raising the family and then cooking all the food afterwards and making sure we were nourished to go out and hunt more. And uh, what had happened was uh, in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, which is ancient Mesopotamia, which would be modern day Persia effectively, um, it was a very fertile belt where barley and grains grew uh, in mass abundance and they still do today. And what had happened was, you know, along with the cooking and the developments of cooking, they had open wood ovens and they would make bread. They make bread from the barley. And what happened was a woman, it was a woman who discovered brewing and beer. And uh, whereas wine is much more male driven, beer was far more female driven throughout history. And what would happen was as a cooking activity, it was left out overnight. So you imagine what happens to uh, water as it soaks into grains of bread and then you have the airborne yeasts which they weren't really aware of then but the sugar content was eaten up and uh, by the yeast and converted into alcohol and the next day they found this intoxicating porridge which became known as beer and from there it really spurred a whole agricultural development the agricultural revolution much like the industrial revolution some 10,000 almost 10,000 years later was spurred largely by the development of beer because what happened is um, humans cultivated into civilizations. And in particular, you got Sumer and ancient Babylon built in this region. And what had happened was they built cities 
based around grain production because it would make sense. And we became, humans became food gatherers, not hunters. And grain became a massive staple in our diet. And with it, of course, we built farms to uh, farm animals such as, you know, cattle and chickens and whatnot. But with this, beer had such a huge impact because you also had, in order to irrigate the field, you had to create plows. And with plows and ox pulled carts and whatnot, you had to create wheels. And with wheels, that led to transport. Transport led to shipbuilding. And all this really spurred a huge economic engine behind beer. So beer is really the impetus of it all that really led to um, a whole host of innovations as we know it today. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and that's, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think about, but I mean, you know, if you go back even to study like ancient texts, I mean, I know beer, wine, all of this stuff is definitely mentioned throughout any, any society or any culture. You have some mention of it somewhere dating back to the earliest writings of, of mankind. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, uh, the first forms of writing were uh, largely created because of beer. The first recipe created was a recipe written in cuneiform writing on clay tablets, some, uh, you know, 3,000, 4,000 BC, in tribute to beer to the goddess Ninkanchi, who was the patron saint of brewing in Mesopotamia. So from there, um, writing developed, and writing was used uh, for bookkeeping and for... Um, Obviously, for maintaining inventory and supply, keeping track records. Of course, governments just love this because they got their hands on taxation. And with that, um, you created all forms of ma mathematics because, you know, there was measurements, uh, how much was stowed or stored in certain vessels and containers. And they had to have accurate details of this. So mathematics was a development that came out of uh, the, the invention or the creation of beer and brewing, which is just incredible. And then from there, of course, writing. And from this, because of mathematics and documentation, we're allowed to take a look at all these societies today, present and present ages, to how prolific they were. And if you move forward a little bit, the most prolific of them all were the ancient Egyptians. You know, the royal pharaoh, uh, the pharaohs had royal brewers who were commissioned to be in charge of brewing. Uh, household brewing was largely a, women, a women's activity in Egypt, and it was one way that they could trade into commercial activity because they weren't technically allowed to own any wealth, but they could brew beer. And brew, beer was deemed as a form of money or currency. I mean, they paid wages of laborers by the day in beer. The pyramids were literally built um, paying um, you know, uh, the, the builders of these pyramids in beer and a gallon of beer a day, which they then could use and trade to some capacity uh, for other goods and services. It's just incredible, as well as health. You got to remember in this age, water was really unsafe. And water was pretty much unsafe until, in most cases, up to the 20th century, until we actually developed proper filtration and purification plants. Uh, things like E. coli, typhus, cholera, diphtheria, we're all prevalent in water supplies, dead animals, uh, fecal matter, it would kill you. So what they didn't know of, but what was just by accident, is the boiling process in producing beer would obviously uh, kill everything and made it safe to drink. It was also chock full of nutrients, far higher in nutritional value than today, and a lower alcohol level. So it was, it, it was a daily form of sustenance that was absolutely necessary to keep societies alive. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something you don't think of but i mean it's it's uh 
you know, amazing to think how something, you know, shapes, shapes society and builds things, um, you know, like, like these great, like the pyramids, you know, to think like, oh, well, you know, you know, this is how we paid for it, you know, because we just think, you know, in today's society, oh, yeah, money, you know, we don't think about the fact that we actually traded in other things, money's a more it's, recent form of, of payment. It's true, and in, in hieroglyphic writing on um, papyrus, sheets of papyrus that the Egyptians would write on, they had their own symbol specifically for beer. And it comes up regularly in Egyptian writing, much like they had the same caricature that would come up in cuneiform writing in ancient Sumer. So it tells you just how important it was. And it was also very important because it helped expand territory and commercial activity. I mean, this allowed these societies to engage and to trade with other civilizations. And it created a lot of commercial wealth. And you could just imagine the amount of abundance that wasn't there before that was developed largely because of, of brewing. Oh yeah, just incredible, yeah. incredible, and, and yeah, I mean, and that was you know kind of a, a big thing for for a lot of a lot of trades, you know, political, uh, economic, uh, you know, even religious. I know we were talking about some about how the uh, Roman Catholic Church made a lot of their money uh, selling beer and wine, and well, that's and, just uh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, and moving forward into that era, that is absolutely true. But getting back to this a little bit, it was also medicinal. Um, they found they found traces of tetracycline in the bones of Egypt. Egyptians, archaeologists, and uh, anthropologists found this. It was mostly anthropologists and scientific study, and they were wondering: Is it possible? Because they used to use beer to uh, heal all kinds of digestive issues, ailments. Um, the spent beer grains were often they were burnt. And they would be used to um, treat anal and bowel disorders. And from that, what they found out through uh, finding an ancient Egyptian recipe from 3,000 years ago is one of the ingredients had a high level of tetracycline in it, which would have explained why um, a lot of common afflictions and ailments that killed people for 3,000 years did not affect Egyptians. And why it had such a productive workforce because they were largely sustained on daily rations of beer. It's just incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I know uh, several things I've read, historical documents where it'd be like, uh, you know, oh, uh, you know, I know you're you're having these stomach problems or you're, you're this. And, and I'll actually read, say, like, you know, make sure you're drinking wine or beer because that's good for your good for your stomach, good for your digestion, good for your health. And, uh, you know, so they even knew it back then. I mean, you know, I've yeah. read several documents that reference that. Yeah. And you even think if you move forward into the, the, the Greek and Roman era and the, the, the Phoenicians, which are really Lebanese, uh, their, war their climates were warmer and a little more temperate. So, um, and not as dry and arid. And of course, you need uh, a certain level of uh, crop growth to really grow vines. And that's why it doesn't do well in, in Egypt. I mean, large tracts of desert doesn't really lend itself to uh, viticulture. But moving north a little bit into the more temperate climates around the Mediterranean, of course, wine really started in, in uh, the country of Georgia some 7,000, 8,000 years ago. So wine is a fair bit younger than beer, but it's had such a tremendous impact itself throughout history. Um, you think shipping and trade routes, uh, largely uh, ramped up by the Greek and Roman empires is because of the wine trade. You uh, think about the commercial activity. You think about um, wine was used to um, 
purify water. Wine, I mean, the Romans at least at the time and the Greeks had much safer sources of drinking water than was found um, in much of other societies uh, and as well into the Middle Ages where water was just deadly. But uh, it's because of that that viticulture got organized and, you know, you had site, site and slope selections. They started to understand the landscape and geology and geography and the importance of it and uh, nutrition into crops and you know it's the romans that developed these terraced landscapes to prevent landslides from happening from ruining the vineyards and uh and the aqueducts the creation of a large large uh, expanses of aqueducts would carry fresh water for hundreds if not thousands of miles it was largely used for irrigation as well into the viticulture and of course this tied into the spiritual as in egypt where beer was deemed as a blessing from the god Ra, who was the supreme god, the god of love, life, and beer. You had uh, wine had an equal of importance in uh, Greek and Roman culture. Beer was kind of considered a bit inferior in those societies. It was just the way the society was, was set. But it, beer still had its place and its importance. It was still consumed on a semi-regular basis. Uh, and it was still a form of nutrition. So you've got this impact just on so many different levels that has impacted everything that we have today as we know it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it just, it's, it's a marvel really when you think about it. It just, it's just, it's just incredible how much has gone into human development because of beer, wine and spirits. It's just, it amazes me every day. It really makes me think of how little I know every time I do more reading and research as a sommelier, you know, incredible. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that's the thing. It's like you know, when you sent me over that information, like we talked about, I start, you know, looking up and trying to learn more, so I'd have some good questions or or you know, be able to kind of learn a little bit more about it myself. And I was just like, wow, okay, I'm just keep this like this endless supply of <laughs> of information that just kept coming at me. Like each time I jumped down a different rabbit hole, and it's amazing how much you know historical information, how much society and culture was was really crafted uh from this and things were built to facilitate and uh to help the transport like the the ro roman roads the ships like you said the wheel things like that you know well, move you, all of this along yeah and you think of things like medicine as well in the romans they used wine to and uh, to as an antiseptic uh they used yeah. wine to treat injuries on roman soldiers and in the gladiatorium um the creation of glass glass is an ancient invention uh, it goes back to ancient Sumer and Babylon as well, but it was in a very raw and kind of crude form. The, the, the Romans were the first to really discover the, 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 the purity purposes of glass and how safe it was as a vessel. So the high end of wine, for instance, was in uh, glass amphorae, which was shipped to uh, the Caesars and the emperors of Rome and the, you know, the Senate and all the lead officials and the, the, uh, the, the high society effectively. Uh, because it could also stow and keep wine for a much longer period of time. Because part of the problem, too, was spoilage and spillage in those days. And with that, it, um, it, carried, it carried a status importance that has, has seemed to have transcended throughout history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing now. You know, you go buy, a, well, in most cases, a beer or a wine. A lot of times it's in the glass. Yeah. The little, yeah. little has changed there in the last, what, 2,000 years. <laughs> It's wild, and uh, when you think about it, even in the Middle Ages, what really stopped Europe from plummeting fully into a very, very dark period of time after the collapse of the Roman Empire was the Benedictine and Cistercian monks, because they kept up brewing and, and uh, viticulture 
which allowed uh, money to be collected uh, from pilgrimages. Uh, they, you know, travelers stopping by the monastery, they would use this money, part of the money to keep the monastery active, part of it would obviously go back to the Roman Catholic Church, which really uh, financed them as a financial powerhouse in the Middle Ages. But at the same time, all the science and innovation and the tech were done by the monks largely. And without that kind of funding in the background of beer and wine, you wouldn't have the innovation that would have uh, stepped up and increased during that time frame in an otherwise pretty bleak uh, historical period. As well, um, beer probably saved millions of lives in the Middle Ages because beer consumption was huge. In the Middle Ages, you're looking at about 300 liters a year of beer consumption. The average is about 50 across the globe today. The Czech Republic is at the highest, about like 142. So you think about this is just colossal amounts of beer consumption. And the reason for it is because water was deadly. I mean, you had tanneries just throw their waste in the water, or you had uh, slaughterhouses throwing animal bits into the water supply. Sewage was just thrown into the water supply. So there was no way it was drinkable. And it was largely the proliferation of the monks, as well as uh, the wives at home that would be responsible for brewing. So here you have brewing that would it saved society. And with it, you also had the creation of the tavern, which became a focal point for commercial and uh, political trade discussions and economic discussions with uh, foreigners meeting from all around the globe at that time. So it just they, it shows just you know what we uh, take for granted as something we enjoy in a celebratory capacity today um, was was essential for meeting and discussions of key political and economic matters of the day, which shaped the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, one uh, that reminds me of one story is actually the story of the master drink uh, in Germany. When yes. The Romans came to uh, came to invade, um, uh, you know, and they they held this this meeting to drink. And, you know, if, if the mayor, I think it was the mayor of the town, could out the Roman soldier, uh, they wouldn't invade the city. Um, and uh you know, I was actually there for the festival, and it was just such a cool story to think like, you know, you know they had basically a drinking contest. That was like the way they met before they, they, um, you know, took the city or tried to take the city. They actually sat down and actually met over a beer and was like, hey, you know, is there any way I can convince you not to do this? So it's amazing to think, you know, things like that were commonplace <laughs> back true. then. It's even common amongst uh, in, in medieval Belgium in the high middle yeah. ages of Belgium, because uh, usually what happens is you had um, brewing controlled a lot of the financial activity in these societies. And you had Protestants on one side and Catholics on the other. You had the Catholic French and the Protestant Flemish that were all in the lowlands, which eventually became modern day Belgium. And there were two mayors per town and the mayors tend to control and own the breweries. And often fights and battles would be erupt between these two, fa these two sects of Christianity effectively. And uh, they would often meet over a pint of beer before the battle started. I mean, it's just these weird traditions as well, right? Yeah. And often it was fought over, over brewing. Um, if you take a look at in the Middle Ages as well, I mean, the whole rise of the whole area of Belgium is because of brewing excellence. What would happen is merchants would sail in from various parts of the world into city-states like Bruges and Ghent and Antwerp, and they would have discussions over pints of beer as to how they would uh, continue their economic trade with each other. So with that, of course, created more demand for shipping power, sailing routes, and maritime power as well, as well as the discovery of new lands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, uh, 
you know, and the thing, you know, like now we just mostly consume for the most part, just for like you were saying, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the enjoyment or the, the pleasure of it, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, celebratory yeah. part of it. And then back then it was like, and that was like everything you did, you know, at some point in time actually revolved around, um, you know, beer and wine in some way, shape or form. Well, yeah, we take it for granted because you think uh, the drunk guy at the frat party or, uh, you know, yeah. somebody uh, dancing around at a wedding all loaded on wine and beer and spirits. It's all celebration. We forget most of the consumers don't realize today that this was essential to support life. And there's a reason why um, wine was called eau de vie or um, whiskey was called whiskey vie, for instance, which is in Gaelic means water of life. It's funny how or vodka, vodka. Uh, has the same meaning in Russian. Mm. It's funny how you have all these different cultures developing in very different parts of the world simultaneously that all have the same insights and beliefs and practices into wine, spirits, and beer, which, which really is a, a common element throughout our history. I mean, we go back even to going, digging back to the ancients for, an, for a minute. Even the Mayans had brewing. You know, women used to chew on the grains and spit it into a boiling pot because the action from the enzymes will break down the, the carbohydrates into soluble, sugar, soluble sugars that they could ferment into a batch of beer. And they knew of its properties. It's, it's crazy. And at the same time, you have the industrial powerhouse of Egypt. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they... They they did a, a couple things, you know, back in back then. Oh, they were uh, far more advanced than we really give them credit for in the age oh, of the yeah. internet, the technology that we have. Um, you know, these were, like I said, taverns were the networking points. Um, royal halls were the networking points in a lot of these societies too, where people would get together and they would decide the fate of an empire. They decide the future of their society over beer and wine. It's, uh, you know, you even get into like the. Uh, the settling of the United States. You know, you get into the 17th century where you, you had the Mayflower, and I can't remember the name of the other ships landing in Jamestown and Plymouth Rock. But what happened uh, was yeah. they ran out of beer when they landed on Plymouth Rock. It was part of the reason why they got out because the settlers knew the danger of drinking water. Water would have killed them. Beer kept them alive while they sailed across that long voyage. So it was through that that they took their knowledge of beer and grains and they saw the nuts being collected by squirrels as nourishment. So they decided to make nut beer. And from there, it allowed a society like the, the United States to develop and ultimately become, go from being a colony into a nation, all because of beer. And oh, then eventually yeah. the rum trade as well, the rum trade with the British Empire. Um, you know, the British, if you go look at the British, it's pretty fascinating because they're the ones that first started the real industrial style of brewing in the 17th and 18th century of porters and stouts. You know, they're the first ones to come up with a high hopped beer called the India Pale Ale to travel to India and make its voyage there without spilling and spoiling. And a lot of that was because they had vested economic interests to supply their military and, of course, their navy. And to keep naval supremacy, they needed these trade routes open for beer and wine and for spirits. Because they knew the value, the high value that these commodities uh, possess. Yeah, and I mean that was one thing when I was actually in uh, in the UK. You know, that was one thing. It was like every corner, you know, there was a pub, and it, you, you could definitely tell. And all these pubs were hundreds, hundreds of years old, or oh uh, yeah, you know, or more. And it was like amazing how much you know. There, you could tell that their culture was definitely a part uh, in that because you know it's just like. I mean, I, I, 
here you can go into a bar and it might be a couple months old. You know, there you walk into a bar and it's older than the United States. <laughs> so. Yeah, you make me think of this pub I walked into in Tallinn, Estonia, that was built out of a medieval church. You know, when I was there with the cruise line industry back in 2000, and the thing had been around since like the 11th century. And to think in Europe, I mean, these types of establishments just, they proliferate the landscape. And it's interesting because throughout all the wars and all the chaos that Europe has experienced in particular, much of what was left standing was to some degree the wineries and the breweries and the pubs because the soldiers didn't have an interest in wiping that out. They had an interest in raiding it. So why destroy something where I'm just going to raid the supplies and have you continue to produce it for me after I've invaded you? You know, it's, yes. uh, it's a reason why some of these places like uh, Vahein Stefan, the oldest active brewery in the world, has been around since 1070 or 1040 AD pumping out beer. I can't remember if it's 1040 or 1070, but it gives you an idea. You know, you're looking at something that's about 1100 years old that has gone through wars, chaos, invasions. You know, it was like Madame Veuve Clicquant uh, during the French Revolution when her um, winery was invaded. The soldiers decided to keep it intact and they helped themselves to champagne instead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, so it tells you the importance that it really has. And without a doubt, those generals and those leaders of those armies told them, do not smash this because we'll take it for its economic and its, its economic importance as well as sustenance while we're, we're moving our troops further inland to invade. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, bouncing back to like American history, I mean, Sam Adams was one of the, the biggest. Uh, he actually kind of drug his brother, um, you know, into, uh, you know, the war effort to go against the British because the trade routes were so important to him with his beer industry. And then, of course, you know, everybody knows the the British, uh, the, the Tea Party, but, you know, the. Uh, the actual you know, beer lines was what got Sam into saying, "Hey, John, you need to you need to get behind this. You need to join up with these guys, and we need time to fight because the they're killing yeah. us." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's it's interesting you mention that because um, the fathers of the American Constitution, Jefferson, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, you mentioned Sam Adams. Uh, a little later on, Benjamin Franklin were all prolific brewers. Yes. And they all had deep interests in brewing. And it's something that's sort of the history books. I don't know how they missed that one because you're right. They talk about the Boston Tea Party and the tax and how everyone flipped out in Boston as an impetus to, to the American Revolution. But beer definitely had equal, if not a greater impact on spurring troops as well. Um, a lot of those battle plans and discussions were held in the taverns along the way and, and towards the battlefronts. So it was the central focal point, a meeting point for the uh, for the revolutionaries to go against the col colonialists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was the thing because I, I watched the uh, the HBO documentary on John Adams, and that's where I learned some of that. Uh, of course, I'd read some of it as well, and it was like you know you'd see them when they were meeting before they you know founded like in Philadelphia. You know, every time you saw any of them meet with anybody, it was either in a in their home or it was in a tavern. You know, yeah, and, and, and I felt like that was such an important part of it. And there was always beer in front of them. If you notice, there's always exactly and mugs full of beer in front of them. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. it's uh, it's incredible. It's uh, yeah, you, you take a look at what the impact that that these these products have had. It's and again, it's just funny to wrap it up a little bit. It's just funny that we always associate with a good time in modern age. You know, hey, you're the smellier. It's all fun and games, and people forget. There's such deep-rooted history 
that begins at the dawn of modern civilization with wine, spirits, and beer. And because of the, these discoveries of these, uh, is particularly beer to kick it off, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are today without it. Oh yeah, definitely not because it, it's the, you know, the, the necessity was created and we all had to come up with the inventions to, to get it out there, you know, because it was so popular and so prolific and so much a part of society. Cause like you said, you know, water wasn't safe to drink. So you had to, you had to drink something. And, uh, you know, so that was, you know, we were like, okay, well, how do we get it from here to there? <laughs> well, and it also, Absolutely. it also, it also exploded modern day capitalism because after the Renaissance into the enlightenment period, you know, the age of commerce where, uh, the East India Company formed and the Dutch East Indies Company and all sorts of American private corporations. Uh, the trade of wine and beer and spirits was a huge part of it. And to protect their interests, they incorporated, which was just a launch not only into modern day capitalism, but into modern day banking. It was modern day banking. You had to get in loans and financing. You know, they had to finance the fleets of ships. Um, later on, it financed railroad, which is a right. huge invention in the 19th century. Um, because you had all these landlocked areas. I think of the southwest of France and the wine world for in particular. Um, they had to compete against the Loire and uh, Burgundy and Bordeaux who had access either to roads or sea routes. So it was easy for their wines to hit the market. And that's still why they command such a massive price today in the market. Lo and behold, the southwest of France produces excellent wines, but it was landlocked. And it wasn't until the advent of railroad, which allowed all this to be transported in a matter of days instead of weeks. So you can imagine the supply management that went with this. Mm. And then with the advent of the automobile, with the, the building of roads and urbanization, um, how it just opened up trade to everything. And a lot of it was spurred to the whiskey, the wine, the rum, and the beer trades. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, so so thank you for coming on the show, Rob. It, it has been an honor and a pleasure getting to talk to you today, man. And um, so for people that are wanting to find out more about you, uh, what you do, and uh, you know your videos, um, and more about beer, wine, and its history, what's the best way for, for people to find out that stuff? Well, they can come and find my Facebook page, uh, The Drunken Grape, on Facebook. If that is the name of it. They can, uh, you know, they can message me directly, Rob Statham as well. And on LinkedIn, I've got a very active platform where I post a lot of video content. You know, my one, you've watched some of them, the little one, two-minute oh, yeah. videos on wine and beer. And, and occasionally I tie that into motivation, other business uh, messages. But a lot of the wine and beer and spirits knowledge is shared and imparted there. It's a lot of fun. It's a great platform. And there's some tremendous, like yourself, there's some tremendous influencers and users out there today that are just great to connect with. And it's that, that's one of my favorite spots uh, if someone wants to connect with me. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely have all that in the show notes. And again, thank you for coming on the show today. David, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. This has been awesome. Thank you. Hey, everybody. David here. Do you guys like science fiction? If so, I just released a novel. It's called Hurtling Toward a Home, A Story of Hope. It's set many hundreds of years in the future when Earth just couldn't support us anymore. We thought we had more time. We didn't take it seriously. We didn't listen to what was being said. And now we have to suddenly build ships and figure out a place to go, but where? So we decide to just go everywhere, to just send ships off in every direction that any scientist has ever said could potentially support human life, to give us the best chance of survival 
we're going to try every planet. So we built ships and loaded supplies and robots on them and shipped them ahead to try and prepare and test the planets uh, to make sure that they were suitable. And as we were building our fleet to leave for our great exodus from Earth. This particular story follows one ship, the Hope, and one young man, Jonathan, as he's always dreamed of living this life of adventure from what he's seen from old Earth movies and read in novels. And he longs for that type of, of an adventure. He longs to set foot on a planet. And yet, he is not. But after his 16th birthday, he gets sent off on a secret mission and an adventure that he never thought he would ever be able to live. I am so excited to share this journey with you guys. And I thank you guys for checking it out. Again, Hurtling Towards a Home, A Story of Hope by David Calvert. <laughs>